I wonder if we could start with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we're just so thankful that even in a time of physical distancing, a time when some among us are quite concerned about their health, a time when we want to practice neighborliness and neighborly love by being respectful of those who are concerned about staying well, that even during a time like this, we can gather. It's a strange way to gather. We, we don't want to get used to this because we want to be back physically together. But in the interim, this has truly been a blessing. So we pray that you would lead and guide and in this presentation and might your spirit shine through above all things is my prayer in Jesus name. Amen. So let me share my screen here with you. And um, I, I've chosen to let me see here, make sure I get this right. Okay, I think now that's what we need. Um, so I've chosen to talk with you today about Adventism. Uh, Ryan asked me to talk about some specific aspects of Adventism. And as I mulled that over, thought about it, prayed about it, whoops, uh, let me get this back to where it's supposed to be. I, um, I decided to do it from a very personal perspective. In a way, it's a bit autobiographical. Um, but it's very deeply meaningful to me. Now I have to say out of the starting gate that I realized I have way too much material and I've had to move some things, cut some things and only present a few of the realities that I've been thinking about in this topic, in this area of content. So I've been thinking about why I'm an Adventist for quite a while. I've been thinking about it deeply in probably the last year to year and a half. I've been writing some things on it. I've been considering uh, how I would answer that question. Because I'll be very honest with you. I think there are people uh, who, if asked, people who are Adventists, people who maybe have grown up Adventists, who couldn't answer that question with a compelling reason. And that concerns me deeply. So I want to talk with you a little bit about why I'm an Adventist. I begin by saying I'm an Adventist by birth. Uh, my parents were Seventh-day Adventists before me, and they blazed a trail that I have been honored to follow. Now, I was talking to my sister, my older sister in Texas, when I was there a couple of weeks ago about our heritage as Adventists. And we believe that we are third or fourth and possibly fifth generation. We're not certain of that. Adventist on my father's side. Uh, however, my father, as soon as he was old enough to do so, he wanted nothing to do with church and left it and lived a very different kind of lifestyle until the Spirit of God, doing what the Spirit of God does so well, reached out and gripped his heart, drew him back to himself, and placed his feet in the pathway of ministry. So dad became a pastor, a professor, a church administrator, an evangelist for, for over 50 years of his life and made a profound difference in my own life, the lives of my siblings, and the lives of thousands, probably tens of thousands of people who heard about the love of Jesus and his plan for our lives 
throughout that 50 plus year ministry. So my life and my world has been very deeply and clearly influenced by Adventism. Now on my mother's side of the family, it's a different reality. My mom was a Southern Belle. She was a Southern Baptist. Uh, both of my parents were born and grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. And mom's family was and remains staunch Southern Baptist folk to this day. Some of the greatest and best people you could hope to meet. They're very committed to Jesus, very committed to scripture. And, uh, and they struggled some when mom left uh, the Southern Baptist uh, Convention to become a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But those things were dealt with, and, and over the years, they maintained a very close connection. My mom came from a family of three sisters. No boys, just three sisters. Their last name was Brothers. <laughs> so they were the Brothers' sisters. But both of my parents, after those early decisions that maybe would have led them in different directions, after they made those and then made a decision to be Seventh-day Adventists, faithfully maintained that commitment to Jesus and that commitment to Adventism throughout their lives. So I grew up in that context. But there does come a time, it came in my life, it comes in every life, when you have to decide, is it enough to be Adventist by birth or Christian by birth? Or is there something more that has to enter into the picture? And that was the case for me. I became Adventist by belief, by conviction, by commitment. A lot of this happened during my college and seminary years. But in honesty, as, it has, as I have continued in the trajectory of both life and ministry, as I have continued to read and study, my appreciation for, my respect for, and my gratitude for my Seventh-day Adventist roots just continue to deepen. So I want to share with you a few of the reasons. There's, there'd be a much longer list than this. And I realize I'm going to have to cull this down and just choose a few pieces if we're going to have any hope of getting through some of this. I want to share with you a few pieces why Adventism is so important to me. So why am I an Adventist? I'm an Adventist because Adventism understands that the story is bigger than you and me. It's bigger than you and me. In fact, uh, Adventism has a unique focus on this. Now, as I talk about these different reasons for my commitment to Adventism, uh, you'll recognize that some of these are shared by other Christian faiths as well. Uh, but even though we do have some that are uniquely our own, for me, it's more than just one individual piece. It's a larger picture, and it's how all of these commitments come together. This one, though, I think is fundamental. Uh, Adventism captures this in what we call the great controversy theme. This great controversy between God and Satan. And at the core of that is the character of God. Who is God? Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted not just by us as human beings, but can God be trusted by the universe? Are Satan's accusations true? The character of God is the central reality of this great conflict. 
And we as Adventists have long understood that and have long affirmed that, this, that even though we're integral to the story, the story is actually much bigger than you and me. So the key issue has to do with the character of God. Consider this quote by Ellen White. This is one of, I think, her most timeless quotes. She says, it is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, behold your God. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. I think Ellen White captures there in vivid terms and in poignant terminology the reality that God is at the center of this, this conflict we call the great controversy. Adventism has, has always recognized that, continues to recognize that, that it's a bigger picture than just us. We're swept up into this conflict, but really the key issue is the character of God. I'll give you one simple way that this, that this affects us. Uh, I'm going to stop sharing here for a moment so I can look at you maybe a little bit more uh, clearly. One of the ways it affects us is what we believe happens at the end of time. For many of our Christian brothers and sisters, there's a belief, and for some it's a very strong belief, that those who are not saved, those who have spurned God's grace and mercy, will burn forever as a punishment. I simply cannot bend my mind around that reality and believe that a God of love and grace would do that. Truthfully, that's a doctrine that has probably driven more people to reject God than maybe most other doctrines. And, and it highlights the fact that God's character is at the center of this controversy. And the fact that we believe we serve a God of love who will not do that is key in its importance to me. I'm an Adventist because of God. I'm an Adventist because the story is bigger than you and me. Okay, now let me see here. I'm an Adventist, secondly, because of how Adventism understands the Bible. Now, you can imagine that if you look at the sweep of Christian history, there is a significant spectrum in terms of how people have related to Scripture. Adventists have always been known to be people of the book. We are people who have committed ourselves to studying and understanding God's Word, believing that it speaks to us today in timeless ways. But there are differences in terms of how we, as part of the Christian confession in a larger sense, uh, believe scripture came to be. So let me talk to you just briefly about that. Here's the opening paragraph of Luke's gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, says Luke, 
since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, that passage, maybe more than any other, gives us an insight into some of the ways inspiration of Scripture works. In fact, one scholar who isn't uh, Seventh-day Adventist says this, there's no passage in the Bible which sheds such a floodlight on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. No one would deny that the Gospel of Luke is an inspired document, and yet Luke begins by affirming that it is the product of the most careful historical research. Remember what Luke said? He says, I have carefully investigated everything. The Spirit of God worked on Luke, inspired him, but it didn't cause Luke to turn off his mind. I've been reading through this six-volume series, Biography of Ellen White, now for some time. Uh, this is by uh, Arthur White. It has been a joy. It has been an illuminating read. I'm now probably halfway or so through the fifth volume. One of the things that has struck me has been that Ellen White in her writing was very similar to what Luke just said he did. Ellen White had research assistants who helped her track down things that she didn't know that became included in her writing. And yet the Spirit of God was moving powerfully and prophetically in her life. Now that informs how we understand Scripture. And for, for us as Seventh-day Adventists, that's a key point. So let me go back to my sharing now and read the next uh, slide. Very simple, because I have a question for you. I want you to just think about this for just a moment. You don't have to say it out loud. You don't have to say it to anybody. But in your understanding of how Scripture came to be, were the writers of Scripture more like court reporters or more like news reporters? That's a key question for any person of Christian faith, but it's especially an important question for us as Adventists. Were they more like court reporters or news reporters? My sister worked for many years as a court reporter, and I, I, to this day, I'm still stunned that she can literally sit at this little machine, and even if we were having a con conversation, she could take down with, with very little error exactly what we said, word for word, verbatim. It's stunning. News reporters, on the other hand, do something different. News reporters ask questions, they enter into an event, they try to find the truth of who, what, when, where, why, and how, and then they give the news report often in their own language, in their own terms. Now, it is true, they may use direct quotes at times, they may even have somebody on the broadcast to speak in their language. But overall, we understand when we listen to a news reporter, we are getting something that we hope is the truth. These days we wonder, don't we? But that it is coming through that human channel. That's how Adventists understand inspiration. Now, I'm going to read you, it's going to be several slides, so uh, just stay with me. But a piece from a much larger section in the first Selected Messages book. 
I want you to listen to how Ellen White talks about this reality called inspiration. She says, it is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual writer's mind. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. In our Bible, we might ask, why do we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels? Why do we need the Acts of the Apostles and the variety of the writers in the Epistles to go over the same thing? You may have had that question. <laughs> in many cases, they tell the same stories. She continues, the Lord gave his word in just the way he wanted it to come. He gave it through different writers, each having his own individuality, though going over the same history. Their testimonies are brought together in one book and are like the testimonies in a social meeting. They do not represent things in just the same style. Each has an experience of his own, and this diversity broadens and deepens the knowledge that is brought out to meet the necessities of varied minds. The thoughts expressed have not a set uniformity as if cast in an iron mold, making the very hearing monotonous. In such uniformity, there would be a loss of grace and distinctive beauty. The creator of all ideas may impress different minds with the same thought, but each may express it in a different way, yet without contradiction. The fact that this difference exists should not perplex or confuse us. It is seldom that two persons will view and express truth in the very same way. Each dwells on particular points which, has, which his constitution and education have fitted him to appreciate. The sunlight falling upon the different objects gives those objects a different hue. Through the inspiration of his spirit, the Lord gave his apostles truth to be expressed according to the development of their minds by the Holy Spirit, but the mind is not cramped as if forced into a certain mold. Now, friends, that's, that's a stunning passage. And that departs significantly, significantly from certain others who also claim the name of Jesus. There are some religions, for example, that virtually see Scripture as falling down untouched from heaven. God's words, specifically, and no human element within it. Adventists have never seen it that way, not in our official statements. And even Ellen White, for whom we have such profound regard and appreciation for her prophetic utterances, says that's not the way God chose to work. He left room for the individual to speak the truths of God. In that way, it was very incarnational, just like Jesus was the incarnation of God. It was incarnational in that God gave divine, eternal truth, and yet communicated it through human instrumentalities. I'm an Adventist because of how Adventists understand the Bible. We'll press right along here, a third one. I'm an Adventist because of how Adventism, at its best, understands salvation. I'm going to read you a text that's, at first thought, that's a pretty negative text to talk about salvation, but I read it because of what it says at the end. Here it is. Jesus is 
giving woes to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, this is in Matthew 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. And this is the part I want you to note. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. That's an Adventist understanding of salvation. It starts with the heart. When we haven't been at our best, and there have been those times, I grew up in places and times like that. The first focus has been on behavior. But when we're faithful to scripture, when we're faithful to what Ellen White shares, the truth is simple. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the roots. And the fruits will then begin to take care of themselves. So with that passage in mind, let's read this one. I love this passage from Desire of Ages. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. I don't know that there's a passage in the writings of Ellen White that more powerfully and beautifully captures how we as Adventists understand salvation. I mean, every sentence there says it, but I love that second sentence. It was heart work with Christ. He went to the heart. Why? Well, remember what he said back here in, in uh, Matthew 23, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. That's what this passage is saying. But of all the sentences in this passage, there is one that grips me more than all the rest, as beautiful as they each are. And it's this one. When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. That immediately, in the words of one, places knowing God as the cause and obeying him as the result. So if you're struggling with obedience, and this whole paragraph is about obedience, seek to know God. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you an intimate and deep and lasting understanding of the character of God so that you might know God. Because when you know God, <laughs> your life will be a life of continual obedience. That passage alone would be enough to make me Adventist. I love that concept. Moving right along in the interest of time, I'm an Adventist because of how Adventism understands God, God's work and human rest. Now, this drives us right into the, right into the thick of one of our not totally unique, but largely unique Adventist doctrines that we find right at the beginning of Scripture. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude, 
And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it, God rested from all the work he had done in creation. I love the Sabbath. The older I get, the more I love the Sabbath. I grew up in a world where many Adventists felt negatively about the Sabbath. And it was so because the Sabbath had become a burden. There was such a focus on you can do this and you can't do that. And the can'ts were a lot longer than the coulds, and it created a negative environment. But by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, I've come to understand much more fully the intent of the Sabbath, and I find it such a powerful blessing in my life. I love the concept that God's work is work in which we can rest. Now, here's what's curious to me. There's a lot I could say about Sabbath, but I want to say something that we don't talk about as often. Uh, here in my office, in fact, I could take you over and I could pull probably 12 to 15 books off the shelf pretty quickly without too much problem, written by Christian writers of other Christian confessions talking about Sabbath. Sabbath has become a focal point in much Christian writing. Now, for most, this isn't totally true, but for most, they're talking about the concept of Sabbath, not about a 24-hour period from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But, even, but now I'm even finding some that are beginning to do that. In other words, the world is beginning to recognize the value of Sabbath. Amazingly, some of the best theology I've read in recent years have about Sabbath have come from pens that are not Adventist. It's amazing to me. I mean, I'm gratified by it, encouraged by it, and hope that the Sabbath, as we've understood it, becomes a blessing to many, many others. But here's one example. One writer talks about the rhythms of God's work in creation. You know it well because you've read Genesis 1, and the evening and the morning were the first day, the evening and the morning were the second day, the evening, etc. Always starts with evening, and it's from that concept that we take our beginning Sabbath at Friday at sunset. But here's the rhythm of creation pointed out. The rhythm of creation means that for humanity, our experience of the world, our experience of God, begins with rest. God works, we rest, and then we awaken the next morning to join God in his work. That's the rhythm of creation. That's what Sabbath can mean to us. It means that God created the world and I didn't, and that I can take rest in God's completed work. I think there's something deep by the way, deeply symbolic in the fact that Jesus rested after completing the work, not only of creation, but of recreation and of salvation. Now, let me go back to screen sharing here because I want to share something with you that I find interesting. This is quite a list. Now, I'm just going to hit some high points in it, but there's a reason I'm reading it to you. So think of how positive this view of Sabbath is. Sabbath is taking a day a week to remind myself that I did not make the world and that it will continue to exist without my efforts. It's a day when my work is done even when it isn't. 
Um, it's the day when I remember that God made the world. He saw that it was good. It's the day when I produced nothing further on down the list. It's the day when at the end I say, I didn't do anything today and I don't add and I feel so guilty, etc. It's quite a list. Uh, I find myself saying amen time and again as I read this list. Here's what's interesting. This list was not written by Seventh-day Adventists. This list was written by Rob Bell, who has taken some heat for some of his theological positions. But it just serves to give an example of how others are coming to an understanding of Sabbath, of God's work and human rest. That's a key part of what it means to be Adventist. And that's a part that I absolutely love. Okay, moving right along. Let's see, we're just trying to keep an eye on the time. I'm an Adventist because of how Advent Adventism understands, I missed a word there, God's plan for human wholeness. Now, you know what I'm talking about here. Uh, we go to this text. It's one that we've often read and quoted, Paul writing to the Corinthians. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There's an indivisible whole in terms of how Adventists view humanity. We view this, this body that God has given us as a temple, as a place in which we worship God, as a place in which we live the lives God gives us to live. Uh, the Adventist view of understanding human wholeness could say it this way. We, we understand human beings not to have a soul, but we understand that human beings are souls, are indivisible whole. That's who God created us to be. So our pastoral staff, um, we have worship every Tuesday morning, uh, start of the day. Uh, a, a lot of the pastors anyway, take Mondays off because our, our work week, uh, just having talked about Sabbath, is nevertheless Tuesday to Sabbath. Uh, it's a very busy day and we take great joy in it. But anyway, we start each week with, with worship on Tuesday mornings. And this is our whole staff, not just the pastors, but the administrative assistants, maintenance, media, all the rest. So recently in the last, I don't know, year or two, We've actually decided we're just going to read some books. Uh, and so we're just, in fact, just this last Tuesday, finished a book that is a book I would highly recommend to any of you. It was written by Dr. Paul Brand and Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a well-known Christian writer. Dr. Paul Brand, the late Dr. Paul Brand, you're out throughout his lifetime, worked primarily with leprosy patients, both in India and in Carville, Louisiana. This book is entitled Fearfully and Wonderfully, Fearfully and Wonderfully, and it is drawn from that Psalms where the psalmist says, I will praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. As we have read through this book chapter by chapter, I've ended the reading of each chapter saying to my colleagues, I just don't understand how one could read about the complexities of the human body from a spiritual perspective and have any question about a designer, a creator. It has woven into my heart and mind yet once again, the realities of God's handiwork, what he has done with this thing we call a human body, 
that even though we're in a fractured, broken world, and even though it doesn't work right in this place and time, it was designed with exquisite care. Uh, a preacher of my youth said something that I think of whenever I think about that. He said, we were designed for heaven. We will never function fully till we get there. So no, we're not functioning fully. But praise God, we're functioning in truly remarkable ways. And the way Adventism understands this indivisible wholeness of humanity is key because it has to do then with how we care for our bodies. Now, I know we have tended to focus in on certain things. But I think we know enough from science now to know that some of the things we have avoided are good to, to have been avoided, but some of the things we have used probably ought to have been avoided as well. Am I the only one that dares to admit to a sweet tooth? Um, we need to be consistent in how we understand these things. Now, just like Sabbath, the world around us has caught up with us. I'll tell you, in, in the world of my childhood, growing up as a kid, both in Latin America and in Texas, when we went in and sat down at a restaurant as a family and asked, what are your vegetarian options? In that day and time and in those places, people looked at us like we had just confessed to some deep, dark sin, like, what do you mean vegetarian? Uh, there just wasn't that concept. Meat was such an integral part of the diet. Yet look at where the world around us is today. I have been keeping track of the number of Adventist doctrines. I've mentioned Sabbath. I've mentioned uh, eternal hellfire not being one of our doctrines. And now I've mentioned health. I've been keeping track of how many of them have slowly become integrated either into the culture at large or the Christian culture. I've been gratified by that. So one Ellen White comment along those lines before we move to the next item. Um, she says this, the relation that exists between the mind and the body is very intimate. Now, who of us would disagree with that? We're on a health sciences campus. Many of you are in the health sciences, physicians and nurses and researchers, all the rest. You know the truth of that reality. It's a part of my Adventism for which I am deeply grateful. Okay, I'm going to share one more, one last one. This one might take just a little bit longer, but it's key. It's deeply important to why I'm Adventist. And that is, I'm an Adventist because of how Adventism understands the destination of history. Now, understand. There are many people around us in the culture, and even I encounter at times people of faith. I'm thinking of one right now. It's hard to believe and it saddens me, but who understand that what we have right now is all that we have. This is our one go around, so you better spend it well. Now, I agree with the fact of spending it well. I agree with the reality of committing ourselves to a cause greater than ourselves, of seeking to make a difference in the world for God. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying history is going nowhere. It's not. And that saddens me. 
As a pastor, I've had the privilege, the sacred privilege, many times of walking with families through the valley of the shadow of death. In the years I worked as a chaplain, I can remember time and time and time again, gathering with families around a bed, holding hands, as final breaths were about to be breathed or had already been breathed, and repeating the 23rd Psalm, saying the Lord's Prayer together. And then from a heart that beats with the hope of the coming of Jesus, being able to say to them, this isn't the end of the story. Knowing that I as an Adventist, after all that word Adventist means I believe in the advent of Jesus. This isn't the end of the story because as an Adventist, I believe history has a destination. It's going somewhere. So the question becomes, where exactly is history going? according to an Adventist understanding. Well, history will culminate in the second coming of Jesus, in the final and full establishment of the kingdom of God. Some, I was thinking this just the last couple of mornings as I was reading my Bible devotionally. I'm in a section right now in the Gospels, I, I'm read, each year I read through the Bible, and this year I've chosen to read through the Chronological Bible. And so by doing that, it means that as I'm reading through the Gospels, kind of like we read earlier when we were talking about inspiration, I encounter uh, different Gospel writers telling the same story. So I've been in sections where a lot of miracles are happening. And I thought, you know, it would be easy to read this and think, Jesus, why don't you do this again now? Why don't you or, or, or somebody you send walk through the hospital up there and heal every person in every bed? Why don't you banish COVID? Why don't you do that again? I think I know Jesus' answer. Jesus would say, I'm going to. <laughs> it's a good, good, good idea you have there, Randy. I'm going to do that again. I did it the first time I came with just a few to give you a foretaste of what I'm going to do for everybody when I return. That's the destination of history. That's what allows me to stand at a bedside, to stand in a funeral home parlor, and to say grieve because the people of God throughout time, throughout scripture, grieved Tears are God's gift to us to, to express our sorrow. But like Paul said, don't grieve without hope as the others do. Because history is going somewhere. History is going in the direction of the second coming of Christ. This is one of my all-time favorite passages. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My father's house has plenty of room. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. I want to read to you what, it's a little bit of a long passage, I'll say that right up front, but what may be my favorite Ellen White passage? It's describing what happens as 
as time steps into eternity, when Jesus comes and establishes the kingdom, and when all that will happen at that time occurs, what will that look like in terms of the future? So here we go. Beautiful words from Great Controversy. She writes, Satan's work of ruin is forever ended. For 6,000 years, he has wrought his will, filling the earth with woe and causing grief throughout the universe. The whole creation has groaned and travailed together in pain. Now God's creatures are forever delivered from his presence and temptations. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet, and the righteous break forth into singing. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Listen to this. The fire that consumes the wicked purifies the earth. Every trace of the curse is swept away. No eternally burning hell will keep before the ransomed the fearful consequences of sin. One reminder alone remains. Our Redeemer will ever bear the marks of his crucifixion. Upon his wounded head, upon his side, his hands and feet are the only traces of the cruel work that sin has wrought. The earth originally given to man as his kingdom, betrayed by him into the hands of Satan, and so long held by the mighty foe, has been brought back by the great plan of redemption. All that was lost by sin has been restored. God's original purpose in the creation of the earth is, ful is fulfilled as it is made the eternal abode of the redeemed. There the redeemed shall know, even as also they are known. The loves and sympathies which God himself has planted in the soul shall there find truest and sweetest exercise. Remember the preacher from my youth, you were designed for heaven. You'll never function fully till you get here, get there. That's what this is saying. The pure, pure communion with holy beings, the harmonious social life with the blessed angels and with the faithful ones of all ages who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, the sacred ties that bind together the whole family in heaven and on earth, these help constitute the happiness of the redeemed. There, immortal minds will contemplate with never-failing delight the wonders of creative power, the mysteries of redeeming love. There will be no cruel, deceiving foe to tempt to forgetfulness of God. Every faculty will be developed, every capacity increased. The acquirement of knowledge will not weary the mind or exhaust the energies. Read that sentence well, students. There the grandest enterprises may be carried forward, the loftiest aspirations reached, the highest ambitions realized, and still there will arise new heights to surmount, new wonders to admire, new truths to comprehend, fresh objects to call forth the powers of mind and soul and body. All the treasures of the universe will be open to the study of God's redeemed. And the years of eternity, as they roll, will bring richer and still more glorious revelations of God and of Christ. As knowledge is progressive, so will love, reverence, and happiness increase. The more men learn of God, the greater will be their admiration of his character. As Jesus opens before them the riches of redemption and the amazing achievements in the great controversy with Satan, the hearts of the ransoms thrilled with more fervent devotion and with more rapturous joy, they sweep the harps of gold and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of voices unite to swell the mighty chorus of praise. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea, 
And all that are in them heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And then this paragraph. The great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness throughout the realms of illimitable space. From the minutest atom to the greatest world, all things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. To have at the center of our faith system that living, vibrant hope, I'm just thankful to be Adventist. Clearly, what I've shared is, is not comprehensive. But it begins to get at those elements and those pieces that, to me personally, have so much meaning and are part of this community of faith of which I'm blessed and privileged to be a member. I don't look down on others. I don't reject them as not being Christian. But I do think, man, I wish you had what I have so profoundly thankful for it and continue to grow in it. And I want that to be a living, vibrant part, which is built on the foundation of Jesus, who always comes first, but is fleshed out in a belief system that is about God. It's about humanity. It's about eternity. It's about rest. It's about wholeness. It's about so many different pieces of what God has in mind and has in view for us. So I've been concerned, concerned that too many Adventists today don't have a robust, a compelling answer to the question, why are you Adventist? I've been concerned enough that I've been working it through on computer and my mind and my prayers because I want there to be no doubt as to why I am what I am. Let's pray together. Gracious God, I thank you and I praise you and I bless you for this gift you have given to us, given to me. What a privilege, what an honor. Lord, let us ever and always hold it in humility, with firm conviction, with charity and grace toward others. But let us never be timid. Let us be willing, as Peter said in his letter, to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that is within us, but to do it with humility and grace. So, Lord, thank you for this gift. Might we share it with every person, every open door that you provide. Might we honor you and respect others is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.
www.audioverse.org.